The reading follows our theme of prayer, and it's from Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. How lovely it is to hear the words of Jesus, which are very convicting here. So let us pray. Lord, open our hearts that we may obey these vital commands out of your word. Amen. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus said, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much. Um, Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. And then we'll have a look at um, some of those verses together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are indeed a good God who who loves to give good gifts to his children. And so we come to you expectantly this morning because we know you love to speak. We thank you that we don't have to guess what you're like. But you've revealed yourself to us fundamentally in your son and in your word about him. And so we pray as we look at these verses together. Father, we don't simply want a better grasp of them a better comprehension or understanding, but we long by your spirit you would help us to apply and be at work in our hearts, we pray. Amen. So I'm going to, I think I'm just um, in verse 5 to 10, I hope, so that's what I've prepared. Um, Is that that correct? Excellent. Um, And I'm going to, just so you know, I'm going to go relatively quickly over 5 to 9, and I'm going to slow right down in 9 and 10. Um, you will see why as we go through. But that's just giving you a warning. If you think I'm going to be finished in ten minutes, then I'm afraid not. It, it's been said that there are fewer, um, easier ways to make a, a room of Western Christians feel guilty than by asking them about their prayer life. And that might well be true. That the figures don't make for great reading. We're not naturally great prayers. And yet the thing is, we know that prayer is vital, don't we? 
The Bible teaches on it again and again and again. We have sermons on it. We have sermon series on it. We, we sing about it. We sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry... And we know it from experience as well. Don't we? we know that when we pray, our life with God is easier in one sense. Our perspectives are more in line with his. Perhaps we are less anxious. The, the scary things of life are dwarfed by him. So why don't we pray more? All kinds of reasons, I'm sure. Um, we're too busy, we're too proud, we've got too many distractions, we have these phone things that just suck us in, we're always going, we're always on. Um, but it's my contention from our passage this morning that one key reason we don't pray more is that we forget whom we're praying to. Now I was encouraged to hear in the children's slot, essentially you did this two weeks ago I think, so that's really exciting for me, um, don't glaze over. But I think when we remember we're praying to our Father in heaven and what he is like, then we can begin to build from there. Then prayer becomes a different thing. Now I was driving this morning over from Oxford and I spotted, I think, a whole load of cars from, I think people playing golf probably, just by the M40, would that be right? Any golfers here? There's some nods. Some of you will have heard of a guy called Jack Nicholas. He dominated the golfing world for three decades. He, he apparently 71 PGA Tour wins. He's the only one of five players ever to win four major tournaments. And what people don't know about Jack Nicklaus is that from 1950, he was mentored by a man named Jack Grout. And what would happen is at the start of each golfing season, Jack Nicklaus would go and visit Jack Grout, his mentor, and they would review his game from the very, very basics right back to square one every year, every single time. At the height of his success, when he was doing brilliantly, even then, every year he would go back to this guy, to Jack Grout. He would teach him how to play golf again. We never grow out of needing to know the basics in some things. And so as we look at this Lord's Prayer, this week and next, you'll be here next week, Jesus is teaching us the fundamentals of prayer again. He's saying, let's press pause. Let's slow right down. And you might think you know it, but let me show you what this prayer is all about. I think what you'll see this week and next is it's a model prayer. It's a prayer we can learn, and many of us will have learned it at school. But as well as that, it's a a pattern for prayer. It's a a skeleton by which we can um, hang our prayers off. If you like, it's shallow enough for a child to splash around in and to begin to have the basics shaped. But more than that, it's actually deep enough for a lifetime of prayer. One that we will never reach the depths of, for the most godly saint even. Um, I want to show you something before we jump in. I think there's time for this. I've chewed over it this week, but I think there is. Um, I want you to head to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because I think there you see with real clarity what's been going on all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. So let me ask you a question. What are the words that Jesus wants to be left ringing in our ears at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Probably the most famous sermon of all time. What is his conclusion? What is the image we're left with? That's not rhetorical. Somebody shout it out for me. It's about building. Go on, someone be brave. Go on. Thank you. So you've got a house on sand 
we've got a house on a rock. That is the building at the end, isn't it? That is the conclusion of the whole thing before he then comes down the mountain and gets on with ministry. And in one sense, the point is obvious. There are two ways to live, says Jesus. But what are those two ways to live? Now track it through quickly with me from chapter 5. I think this is how the Sermon on the Mount works. So go back to chapter 5, to the beginning of the sermon now. And here we see God's kingdom is made up of people who are not self-righteous, but rather people who are, are poor in spirit. Do you see 5 verse 3? Who mourn, I think that's probably mourning over sin particularly, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're a community of the broken, a community of the unimpressive, the humble, people who don't pretend everything is okay. That's what God's kingdom is like. And then he continues, he goes on, he, he redefines six commands, you see from about verse 17 onwards of chapter 5, six commands that these zealous religious folk thought they were keeping. They thought they ticked that box, had that sorted. And then Jesus does something frustrating for them. He raises the bar to show that their righteousness is really just an outward show. He shows that they are hypocrites. You have heard it, it was said, but I say to you, says Jesus. They're doing righteous acts, but they're not really righteous. And so 6 verse 1 then. You see, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So, so don't announce your financial giving with a great fanfare and a dingle of the bell. No, do it in secret. Our passage for this morning, don't go and pray so everyone can see you. No, 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 no. Do it in secret. Go to your room by yourself and talk to your father in heaven. Or, or don't fast and sort of mope around the place so everyone knows you're fasting. It's, it's just between you and God. Do you see the two alternatives then? The, the two houses we can build either, I think, are this externally impressive self-righteousness. They've received their reward already. They're the house on the sand. Matthew later on will say their names are, are Pharisees. They're the hypocrites. That's the house on the sand. Or there's this true righteousness. We throw ourselves upon Christ. That's the house on the rock. Humbly, penitently, poor in spirit, trusting him. And so the two houses at the end of the Sermon on the Mount are both people, I think, who think they're in. They are not religion and irreligion, good life and bad life. Now, they are self-righteousness or made righteous by Jesus. That seems to be the two streams going through the Sermon on the Mount. And so that matters when we come to this passage about prayer. Because Jesus is speaking to people, especially like us, who have pharisaical tendencies. Who love to show off in our prayers who love to seek to impress others. Have a look down at it with me. We're on page 970 if you have one of these Burgundy Pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5. First thing to spot is it's when you pray. Verse 5, it's there. Verse 6, it's there. Verse 7, it's there. It's not if you pray, it's when you pray. Prayer is oxygen for the believer. Prayer is communicating with God. As you've already seen with the children's slot this week and a couple of weeks ago, I guess, it's it's relationship. 
Prayer in one sense is very natural and normal for us. If you came and chat to me afterwards with a coffee and we're chatting away and I say, oh, so you're married, okay, and you know, how's it going with your wife? Don't talk to her. You don't talk to your spouse? Sorry, ever? No. Okay. I guess we would know something was wrong, wouldn't we? Because relationships require communication. Also here Jesus says, when you pray. Maybe that in itself is a challenge. Brothers and sisters, if this is hard for you because you know how poor you are at praying, let me say to you, hang on. Hang on, because I hope by the end of this morning, prayer will seem like something you're more able to do, more able to get to grips with. Before we go the right way then, Jesus gives us two dead ends. So when you pray, firstly, first dead end, don't try and impress people. Suddenly you twig in verse 5 and, and 6 that, that the comparison game in churches has been going on for millennia. It's an interesting world we live in at the moment where everything is, or lots, is focused on the horizontal. We, we are comparing ourselves with others all the time. Social media makes it so easy for us to do that. It tempts us to make evaluations. Our, our hearts so easily seek to find their identity in what everyone else is doing or how they're getting on with life. And we see how we match up to them. And we will have different things that we judge by in a room like this. There'll be different things that you compare. Who's got the biggest house? Who's got the, the best job, the nicest car, the most friends, the best behaved children? Maybe it's the dread because you know it's Christmas newsletter season and you know how you don't match up to those folks down the road with Tarquin grade 8 and violin for whatever. Maybe it's posting that thing on Facebook and you know that you're not going to bother looking today because it would just make you feel small because of how they're doing. It turns out that the hypocrites, the Pharisees, were doing something very similar in their religious life 2,000 years ago. Because prayer for them seems to be more than just a thing, or not even a thing between them and God, it's a thing between them and other people. They make a a huge song and a dance and a show. Everyone notices. Everyone is impressed. Thanks for your prayers in church last Sunday. Very eloquent, aren't you? Yeah, really good. Suddenly you see prayer is not so much about them and God, but prayer is about them and everyone else. We can do that, I think, easily in our day. It's a slightly less common thing now, but if you're of a younger generation, or you're on Instagram at least, um, there used to be a thing a couple of years ago where people would take photos of their quiet times. Do you remember that? It's less of a thing now, but it's kind of hashtag blessed. Hashtag quiet time. Hashtag Bible. And they would post it on social media. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe it's letting everybody else know, yeah, yeah, I was, I was at the prayer meeting actually. Yep. And, and last week. And actually I've not missed one for seven years. <coughs> but the point Jesus is making is that prayer is not about impressing others. It's between you and God and only between you and God. And so Jesus says, okay, 
head off quietly when nowhere else, no one else can see and pray to your Father in heaven. Go and close the door and go and pray to him. And when you're there, well, don't try and impress God, secondly. So first, dead end, don't try and impress people. Second, dead end, don't try and impress God. The idea of babbling like pagans, verse 7, is a sort of vain repetition. It's empty words. There's almost, I think, a superstition element to it going on, where we think God is impressed or persuaded by what we're saying and we keep saying it and we keep saying it and we keep saying look how much this is costing me God you must answer my prayer it's almost a pagan twisting God's arm as we pray it seems very impersonal almost like God is this divine vending machine and if you put the 50p in just right then out will come the goodies out will come what you want He has to give me what I want because I've put the 50p in just right. And I've babbled on and on and on. It doesn't mean we don't need to be persistent. But it does mean we don't need to seek to impress him. Prayer is not superstitious. Why don't we need to impress him? Because he's, friends, he's already impressed with you. He already loves you. He's already your father in heaven. Prayer is personal. You don't need to impress him. And I have been deliberately quick in those two dead ends. Because I want to give us time to slow right down. And to dig down really deep into the starts of the Lord's Prayer, verse 9 and 10. first couple of words our father and i wonder for many of us whether our failure to prayer comes from a failure to grasp these first two words that the way we address someone depends upon our relationship with that person that's true with people so i'm told if ever you were to meet the queen there are six golden rules to abide by i'm not going to talk about them now but i have them here if you want to come and chat to me afterwards That's true in our relationships, but it's true in religions as well. Think of all the different ways people from different world religions pray, this week even. It depends upon their understanding of whom they are praying to. If you're a Muslim, you will repeat ritual ritual prayers five times a day. Because of your understanding of who you pray to. If you're a Hindu, you will speak mantras to an icon of a god or of gods. Because of your understanding of who you're praying to. If you're a Buddhist, you will meditate silently upon the divine inside yourself because of understanding of who you are praying to. And so Jesus, as he teaches us to pray, our Father, he's doing something extraordinary, unique. We're privileged. You probably know the word he uses for Father is Abba. And it's an interesting word. It carries both a respect and an honor on one side, but also beautifully there's a tenderness and an intimacy on the other side. He is the one whom we pray to. The creator of the universe, the ageless and the eternal one, who's always been the sovereign Lord, the omnipotent king, the the one high over all, the ruler of everything. And Jesus says we get to call him dad. Give or take. 
probably right about that point to put into a lay-by briefly. And just for a moment to address that fact, the language of God being Father for some of us might be very difficult. Maybe it brings up all kinds of bad memories. Maybe your earthly father was or is unreasonable and so you struggle because you think God will be unreasonable if we have to call him father. Maybe your earthly father was unreliable or absent and so you struggle, you think maybe God will be unreliable or absent. or Maybe he was mean or unkind. Maybe he still is. And so you think, well, God must be mean or unkind. If I can put it this way, the, often the reason we get rightly angry with absent or unreliable or mean or unkind fathers is because there's something in us that knows fundamentally that is not the way it's meant to be. Because God the Father made the world and fundamentally we, we were made to know him and so when our earthly fathers don't match up, which in one sense we never do, but when it's particularly bad, we know there's something that's profoundly wrong. It hurts so much because they are meant to reflect our Father in heaven. I want to say, if that's you, then go to him and tell him and pour out your heart to him and ask him to help you redefine fatherhood. Not around your earthly father, but rather your Father in heaven. I was talking to a guy on Friday at church in his 60s. Um, And he told me, until he was in his 50s, he hated beef burgers. The reason he hated beef, at least he thought he hated beef burgers, and the reason was, he had this image of a beef burger from when he was at school. And you know those kind of thick cardboard things you get in the school canteen? That was what he thought a beef burger was. And when he was 50, plus... He went to a pub just around the corner from us, a place called the Rusty Bike. It's on Morden Road. Recommend it. Um, they do amazing burgers. And suddenly he had this burger and he realized his definition of burger was all wrong. He had been judging burgers by this burger back here, the cantina, when he was in primary school. And it's a little bit like that with God being our father. We need to have the right definition of what father is. And sometimes we can judge father on... This side, the canteen at primary school, our earthly fathers, you can get it so wrong. But actually it's this side. He's extraordinary. He's what fathers are meant to be like. He is the archetypal and good and glorious father. As if praying our father in heaven is hard for you, then ask him to help, help you redefine your definition of father. Not around your earthly one, but around him. And if you want to know what he is like, then read the Sermon on the Mount. Read about him. And so as we start, as Jesus teaches us how to pray, you see, it is not a business relationship, it is a family relationship. And in a business relationship, however well you get on with your employer, however well you get on with your boss, they are still your employer. You are still their employee. And if you have a bad enough day, if you make a big enough mistake, then your P45 will be heading in your direction the next morning. And it's game over. Please clear your desk and look for a new place to work. But God is our Father. 
It's permanent. He is committed to us. He loves us, whether we do well or whether we muck up. We we don't have to try and impress him or earn his love. We are secure because he is impressed with us because of Christ. It's not just Father, though. It's our Father. You spot that? And this matters because in our increasingly individualistic culture where you've got your life and I've got my life and we just do things on our own and on our phones and we're self-rules, what matters most is me, thank you very much, and people are increasingly lonely and isolated and depressed about it. Here is a prayer that reminds us we are not alone and as believers we are part of something bigger. And so Jesus calls us to pray to our Father. It's not the Father as if God is unrelated to you in some sense. But our Father, we are part of a family together. There's a community or corporate element. It's not even my Father to guard us from selfish prayer. Friends, your Christian life is is more than just you and God. I remember as a teenager, I was in many meetings that said, this is just between you and God. And in one sense, that's right. In another, it's really not. It means later in the prayer, have you noticed this, and you'll see it next week, Jesus does not teach us to pray, give me today my daily bread, but rather give us today our daily bread. Or forgive me my sins as I forgive those who sin against me, but rather forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Or lead me not into temptation and deliver me from evil, but lead us not into temptation deliver us from evil it's our father and he's in heaven and i don't know what you've said in previous weeks um on this bit for the kids slot two words for you him being in heaven is really good news two words for you firstly it's the place of power it's the place where he reigns and he rules So there's a paradox, isn't there? He's our father, it's intimate, it's close, he cares. But then he's in heaven, there's this kind of distance. But actually, we pray to one who is able to answer. He reigns and he rules. He's in a place of power. If it was just our father, hallowed be your name, we think, well, that's lovely. But maybe he just has a good listening ear. Maybe he he really cares, and he's really nice, God, but he's not able to help us that much. But no, he's in heaven, which means he doesn't just care, he can do something about it, because he's in a place of power. He answers our prayers. Heaven has various strands through the scriptures, but one of them is that he's kind of the control center of the universe, if you like. Which means maybe there are things that you're praying about and you've, if you're honest, you've lost impetus in those prayers. Well, again, remember, it's not, don't just remember who God is, our Father, but where He is. He's in heaven. He, He can answer. He is powerful. Keep going with those prayers. That means we can pray big prayers. Sometimes we have a bit of British reserve about us, or maybe just a lack of faith, and we, we, we don't pray those, pray those big prayers. We're fearful to pray them. Well, remember who he is, but where he is. Our Father in heaven. We can pray audacious prayers, and he will answer them in line with his will. It's 
a place of power, but a place of purity as well. And that's good news because so often in our days, with power comes corruption. We struggle to trust people in positions of power. We read of politicians who have fiddled their expenses or massaged the numbers to make things look better for them or the managing director who's milked a company and the CEO who has acted improperly, whatever it might be. And our sinful hearts can struggle to trust. But our Father in heaven is incorruptible. He, he is powerful, but he's pure. He's good. We can trust him. Then the next bit. Verse 10. Or at least last little bit of verse 9 first. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see the repetition of your? I think that's why we're looking at those lines together today, this morning. It, it makes it a very unnatural prayer in one sense. Because it shows us the heart of a person whose life has been turned upside down. A person who's realized it's not all about us. We've realized we are not the center of the universe. And this is huge because from the cradle we, we learn to put me first. We don't need to teach our kids to be selfish, do we? We don't need to say to them, guys, can you please just stop sharing so much? Stop being so kind with your toys, will you? Just think of yourself first for a change, kids. No, the innate desire is to look after number one. We think we are the center of the universe. That's, that's our natural bent from birth. And yet for the believer, we've undergone the kind of revolution where we realize the universe doesn't revolve around us, but around him. And so it means the structure matters. And so we will pray for our needs and our forgiveness and our protection next week. They're all legitimate prayers. But, but before that, there's him. It doesn't go, and Jesus said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. No, no, first, it's the reorientation around him, isn't it? And I find that convicting. Because I can easily go, our Father in heaven, give me today my daily bread and move on. Let's be honest. How often we can come to God with a list of wants, maybe good wants, they're wants that matter, they're important, but they are our wants nonetheless. And so isn't it striking that Jesus, before he really even gets into the prayer, reorientates us around him first. Let's remember what our life is about, says Jesus. It's not about you, friends. Imagine a world where it's all about you. That would be awful. Now, our world is all about him. And so it is glorious. Just quickly working through them. We'll be all right. Hallowed be your name. 
I think primarily there we are praying for his reputation. So I'm a preacher, so they're ours. I apologize, okay? Reputation. Hallowed be your name. And it's interesting, names in the Bible perhaps reveal more then than they do now. We, we pick names for our children now because we like them rather than because of what they mean, perhaps. And yet names in the Bible reveal something about the character of the person, what they are like, what they do, who someone is. Which means when Jesus says, hallowed be your name, hallowed or holy, it's not simply the name of God is kind of magical or mystical. But it's more about who he is, his character, his activity, what God is like. It's that we long for his name to be respected and holy, his, his reputation not to be solid and marred. And I think, frankly, that comes first in our own lives. Sometimes it's a prayer that we can kind of pray out there somewhere. Lord, we long that in this world your name would be hallowed. And there's something of that, definitely. But maybe first it's letting the reality of the God whom we serve shape the kind of people we are. So that when our friends look at us or watch our lives, they see the difference that he makes. They see that his name is holy because he's shaping us. And then that others might hallow his name. So God's reputation. Secondly, your kingdom come. God's rule. And again, we can get a bit twitchy around this because we don't like necessarily language of ruling or power, but a big part of it depends on how you, how you define the king. Who is the king whom you serve? What sort of a king do we have? And we've been there already. In context, back to the start of chapter five, the Sermon on the Mount, his kingdom is not about an external legal military rule. His kingdom is internal. It's heart submitted to Jesus. His kingdom is made up of people who are poor in spirit, who recognize their need of a savior, who mourn over sin, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are merciful and pure in heart to others, who are peacemakers. And theirs is the kingdom. That is the kingdom. It's the way God transforms the world because he transforms the people to be like his son. God raising up disciples who reflect their king. I suspect that has relevance for you guys at Long Crendon. It's busy in here this morning. I know there are conversations afoot to do with overcrowding. And what do you do? Do you plant or do you start a second service or whatever it might be? Regardless of where you end up, remember this is not about your kingdom. We are shaped by the king. We are a people who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are meek, who are hunger and thirst for righteousness, people transformed internally before we then go out and live in the world. So wherever you end up, and there are all kinds of good things to think about, I'm sure. Remember the king who shapes us, though. Your kingdom come as well must have a sort of forward glance Jesus will come back. His kingdom will fully and finally come. This is not all there is. He will make all things new. There will be a time when there's no sin and suffering and death. When tears are wiped away. When we see him face to face. His kingdom now within us and through us. But also the kingdom to come when he returns. So his reputation, his rule and finally his reign. 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I could speak for hours on this verse. I shan't. Um, But God's will in the scriptures is an interesting idea. It's multifaceted. There's a tension there. There are paradoxes going on there. Um, Just for now, know that his will being done means people living as he wants us to live. That will is already being done in heaven. God's commands obeyed perfectly. His decrees perfectly coming to pass. His loving and kind rule being lived out exactly. And it's that kind of a will being done on earth. And it's a will as well that means God the Son, that Jesus will say, yet not my will, but your will, Father. As he will patiently surrender himself on the way to the cross. Which means it's a will that means we live transformed, cross-shaped, sacrificial lives. Walking in the footsteps of Jesus daily cross-shaped obedience not that our will be done Lord but that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven surrendering our all to him hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven it's It's lives and it's a world shaped and moulded and transformed around our king, his reputation, his rule, his reign. That our father in heaven might be glorified. And he loves, he loves to answer that kind of a prayer. Let me pray to him now. Father, we confess so often we can find prayer really hard. We pray that you would guard us from the dead ends we've thought about, guard us from trying to impress others or impress you. But we pray fundamentally that we might be a people who who know you, not just know about you, not just know ideas or facts or thoughts, but actually know you have a relationship with you. We thank you that you are our Father. Thank you that you are generous and kind Father. Thank you that we pray this together as part of a family. Thank you that you are our Father because we are in Christ. Thank you that you are in heaven. A place of power, which means we can come to you with audacious prayers. But a place of purity as well, it means we can trust you. And we pray that we might be a people increasingly who reorientate our lives around you. Lord, we confess that the tendency of our hearts is to swerve in on ourselves. To jump from our Father in heaven to give us today our daily bread. So we pray that increasingly we would live lives that long to see you glorified. That we would reorientate our lives around you. Your reputation, your rule, your reign, Lord, be at work within us first. 
And then we pray through us into the world around. But Father, in one sense, we don't just want to understand these verses better. Pray that this week even, this week even, you would grow us in our praying. Thank you that you're our Father in heaven. It will be long that you would reign in us afresh. In Jesus' name, amen.